Hello and welcome to Plants and Pipettes, where we talk about random things that happen in the world of plant science. My name is Tegan. That's Yoram. Hi, I'm Yoram. Hi, Yoram. How's it going? Yeah, I already complained a lot before on the chat that I don't, I feel weirdly Good. So we don't exhausted. need to have the complaints. Good. Exactly. So Let's apart from that, I'm, I'm I'm still feeling I'm still feeling good. Um, what exciting things have you been doing this week? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good question. I've been doing parent stuff, so lots of boring stuff. The one thing, like a friend of mine just sent, or a friend of ours just sent, um, Etienne that we actually had on the show already, uh, that his story about um, the mistletoe, he was involved, or like he was mm-hmm. running this project about mistletoe that's lacking one major protein complex that's involved in respiration. And it's really weird because pretty much everything that lives and does respiration has this protein complex and mm. mistletoe doesn't have it. Um, and this story is still going strong. Like he just shared re- with me that it's like four years later still being picked up by journalists and um, being written about, which is really exciting. It's it's like, yeah, that's it's nice, nice when you have like a, a science project, uh, like some research that's, just keeps going around and around because it's just exciting. Yeah, I think we can put some links in the show notes to where you can find that mm-hmm. on our podcast. But also, I think we wrote about it on the blog at one point as well. If you want to read about why mistletoe is so very, very weird and yeah. lazy. I would basically just say it's lazy. It's it's not <laughs> bothering to do the basic things re- in, re- required for cellular respiration, which... yeah. I'm sorry, I have to open a door, um, but I'm also tangled. So while I do that, um, what did you do, Tegan? Well, we could just pause and walk you like... Ridiculous. Yes, meow, Lilo, meow. At least say hi. Is it Lilo or it is Lilo? I thought so. Yeah, she's the one who scratches she's the She's the doors. one who usually meows, right? Yeah. My my friend's got a cat. Her name is Sasha, and she's the most beautiful cat you've ever seen. Like I'll send you some photos. She's so so more pretty. beautiful than Lilu. I can't. I can't. Really she has imagine. this like kind of like princess look. She's like very small and petite, and she has this like fluffy caterpillar tail. She looks like an actual mermaid. Like she's just like so beautiful. I don't know. She's like regal, but also sexy, but also like beautiful. <laughs> it's just. I've never seen, I was like, the only person who has all of these traits together is Beyonce. And it's like, her name is also Sasha, which is Beyonce's um, alter ego. So she's just basically the Beyonce of Kat, I think. And what have you been up to? Um, I have the the parents of my boyfriend or the family of my boyfriend are visiting. So I have been up to basically eating all of the Indian food Mm. I can (laughs) day in and day out. And it's amazing. Um, I'm getting lots of food cooked for me. There's also a region in like kind of a a community, a sort of a suburb in in London, which is just sort of where all of the the Indian immigrants came years and years ago, like 20, 30, 40 years ago, maybe now. Um, So we went there and also like ate a lot of food there and it's been I've been a lot of chatting but also a lot of eating so that's mm-hmm. that's good um the other thing I actually mentioned to you that I wanted to talk about on the podcast today which you again didn't remind me of <laughs> krill yarm yeah was it was it dill something something yeah krill what 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 about krill, krill Tegan so so I read I read something in a paper which was that krill undergo 12 larval stages before emerging as an adult form 
Mm-hmm. And my first thought was like, wow, just that's just excessive. Like, yeah. get over yourself, Krill. You don't have to have that many <laughs> lava forms. Like, nobody likes lava anyway. Like, lava <laughs> is rarely something where someone's like, mmm, lava, how delicious, how how wonderful. <laughs> like, 12 forms. But then I sort of said this to my, my colleague. I was like, this is, this is ridiculous. Like, Krill, Krill just are too big for their own boots. And he was like, okay, but how many stages would you say humans have? So that's kind of my question to you today, Yoram. How many stages do you think a human would go through before it reaches its adult form? Maybe three, like baby, three. baby, then like young kid, then pubescent kid, and then adult. Wow. That's what so- I, I like. Maybe like one to two years the first stage, and then two to ten the second stage, and then ten to. 20 and then 20 to death this is like my rough estimate because there i think you have the biggest morphological changes like the bone structure changes from baby to kid and then all the hormones kick in from kid to pubescent and then from like late pubescent to adulthood like changes continue and then after that there is not that much like morphological change apart from like getting crinklier and fatter and slower and with more pain in the body so that's why i would say four okay so i i went through a few more (laughs) my list includes like the first one was like the the when they they first hatch but they're not real babies yet like basically human human babies like come out before they're fully baby because like like humans our heads are too big right so they have to come out earlier Mm -hmm. so there's like that first three to six months where they're not really they can't even see colors, right? Like they're just a bit like, yeah. The, they still pre-baby catch up I'm on drawing. A, yeah, pre-baby. Then there's actual human baby where it's like looks like a baby. It stops being crinkly and it's kind of interactive. Then toddler. Then there's a brief like psychopath phase, I would say, when they're like three and they're just a bit mean. And then child, and then like tween or teen when they're like going through the first hormonal changes. And then I would say there's a bit where it's like they've got the adult body, but the child brain still. Then there's like a period of confusion in the 20s, a period of exhaustion in the 30s, a period of hormonal change in the 40s, a period of retirement, and then a period of waiting. That was my like, that was what I got. So I got 13 as well. I might have just been trying to sort of come up against the krill. And then we discussed it a little more and we thought there should be maybe a period of like exhaustion slash existential dread that comes in the Mm -hmm. 30s. So what about plants? (laughs) Oh, um, plants, they have to seed if they seed plants. Um, Yeah, exactly. Very seed seed plants. Yeah, let's let's start with the seed plants because they are the easy. Then you have like the, the emerging shoot. That's its like own cots. little yeah, where it cot has stage. Yeah, cotyledons and so these are not true leaves and everything. Then you have the part where they make leaves and start to grow and accumulate lots of the biomass. Then I would say you have the flowering stage and the fruit setting stage. Um that is at least five. And then you probably have like tons of like weirdos where some stuff like overlaps and uh, cycles through like. Yeah. I mean, this you can also get like minutely boring because I know there's there's somebody who's like gone through and defined all the stages, at least for like Arabidopsis, because then you can say at stage 2.4, the we found that the color mm-hmm. difference, you know, you can be quite precise, which is very useful for science, right? You can have the precision yeah, but when reporting. So many things that are useful for science are boring. (laughs) Yeah, 
But so yeah, I would anyway. say f- like four for seed bearing plants. It's five okay, main four, stages. Four for so you're saying four for seed bearing plants, four for humans, and thirteen for krill. And you're happy with that? You're happy that like yeah. krill have thirteen and, and we I and plants is- have four. I don't find it, not only find it excessive for krill. I just imagine if you go through like thirteen stages and in, in the end you just krill. Yeah, that's why of, you're exhausted. You, you sort <laughs> of want to humans. come up with something better than that. If you say like I'm going through thirteen stages, I don't. I want to be at least a narwhal or I don't know, <laughs> like an eagle or something or a quokka or something weird. But just krill, it's yeah, it seems it seems. They spend the energy yeah, on on the wrong part of their development. Like they they should, I don't know, develop cool parts, sunglasses and leather jackets or something instead of going through yet another larval stage. Do you know what's great about krill? They're filled with important oils. Do you know what else is important? <laughs> filled with oils. <laughs> this seed plant, which is my favorite plant of the week. <laughs> Do you want a jingle, Tegan? favorite plant Yarim do you know what Cyperus rotundus is rotundus means round and fat but um, Cyperus yeah. like is a cypress a fat cypress yeah sure Cy- Cypress not really a cypress um, it's a Cyperus not a cypress it's kind of like it's a sedge basically so it's kind of a grassy thing mm-hmm. so really and- really far away from a cypress yeah, so so this is going to be my favorite plant today. I'm again doing a yarn because now I will never not do a yarn. I'm not just doing one favorite plant, but I have two favorite plants. But actually, I have one plant that I think is kind of stupid and one plant that's awesome and amazing. But they happen to be siblings or cousins, I guess we would say. So the first plant is Cyperus rotundus. It's also known as cocoa grass, java grass, nut grass, purple nut sedge, or red nut sedge, depending on how you see colors, I guess. Um, It's found (laughs) in Africa and also in Southern and Central Europe, as well as Southern Asia. And it's like just, it's a sedge. So it's kind of like a grassy sort of looking thing. Um, It grows to one and a half meters tall. It's pretty boring, I would say, um, generally speaking. (laughs) (laughs) Is that a topic of today, (laughs) Tegan? Well, I mean, you, you might be able to guess already, but this is the kind of plant I want to talk about. So one of the few cool things about it is that it does have starchy, tuberous parts to it, so it mm-hmm. can be eaten. And they think that it was eaten um, by hominins in the Pliocene times, and they actually have found sort of bits of it. And it, I mean, more importantly, they found dental cavities, so holes in people's teeth. Mm-hmm. Um and they somehow have linked that to this plant because it actually is a good thing. So this seems to have some sort of antibacterial or, or some sort of property that inhibit, inhibited the, the the growth of the bacteria in the mouth. So it kind of mm-hmm. helped make a low frequency of dental holes. Um, and it's it's been used for, for per medicine and perfume, and it has some sort of links to treatment for things like um, 
fever and inflammation at very sort of alternative medicine things. But by and large, it's not super exciting and it's not commonly used these days. Um, it is sometimes used sort of as a famine food. So if everything else is, is lacking, this will be eaten because it does have nutrients. It's got like a lot of carbs in it. It's sort of a, it's a tuba. So it's like, you know, starchy mm-hmm. mass that's under the ground, which can be eaten. Um, but not great and also kind of a jerk because it's an invasive weed that goes everywhere, especially in the United States, and then basically gets in the way of things that might actually produce more tasty foods. Um, and I think because it has a tuber, it's harder to kill it. I think that's part of its problem. So this is this is the first of the two plants. That was Cyperus rotundus, which is a purple nut sedge. I want to move us over to the yellow nut sedge. Mm-hmm. And here I wanted to say that yellow is better than purple. This is Cyperus esculentus, and it has the common name of earth almond, tiger nut, or chufa. Do you know what this is, Yarm? No, no. Okay, so this is something that is prepared as a drink in um, Spanish places. I mean, I've had it in Spain. Our Spanish friend is really obsessed with this. She loves this drink. Um, She never offered it to me. (laughs) I think you can't can't get it in Germany. You can't get it in the UK. At least I've not seen it. It seems to be sort of popular in in Spanish-speaking regions. Um, And yeah, it's it's tiger nuts is the, the common worried but it's quite often made into this like as a snack or into this milky sweet drink called horchata de chufa and you can also get like horchata flavored things i'm probably saying that wrong it's probably horchata not horchata i'm sure our friend will come at me at some point (laughs) but these are tiger nuts they're amazing um and delicious and brilliant and should be cultivated everywhere because they make this really nice drink yeah yeah, now I want I want to have some. They they look also like a good snack in a in a box that they sell it in. Yeah. I don't know if it if you can eat them like snacks, but um so it's called like dynamite baits. Is this used for fishing? I have no idea. Oh yeah, that's a fishing shop where I found it. So okay, <laughs> fish like different it. Different thing. <laughs> Krill likes it. I, I don't know if that's the same thing. So basically, yeah, so you can eat them raw or cooked. Um I that seems to be a popular snack in like West Africa, um, Nigeria. So in in different regions of of sort of North Africa, it's kind of common there. But then it's also soaked and made into this um, mm-hmm. drink. You can also um, make it into a flour and then sort of bake with it. Not you know alone, but you know use it as a flavoring. Um, flavoring in beverages, in ice cream, in different things. Um, and it also makes kind of some oiliness. So the milk has got kind of a nice milky flavor. It's not just like flour in water, if that makes sense. It's got that kind of oily component, which gives mm-hmm. it a nice mouth feel, as we say, I think. Um, mm-hmm. Kokumi. Oh, and you're right. Yeah, it can be in the UK. It's used as a bait for carp. <laughs> Cool, I didn't know that. So probably I can get it in the UK, but only if I pretend that I want to feed it to some fish. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> the reason I came across this is just because I found a paper that is um, by Niemeyer and colleagues. It was published uh, at the start of the month in the Plant Journal, and it's a seed-like proteome in oil-rich tubers. 
And they were basically comparing the yellow nut sedge, aka tiger nut, to the best of the nut sedges, with the purple nut sedge, also known as you would only eat it if you were in a famine scenario nut sedge. So the less cool nut sedge. Um, because they, they already knew that tiger nuts, they do accumulate a lot of oils, um, which are kind of better and tastier in many ways and they wanted to see sort of what was making it and, and basically this is just a proteomic study so they sort of compared the the proteins abundances how many proteins and stuff you could find in the two different species and at different stages of the development of these tubers to see what's happening and they ended up comparing the proteins they found in the tubers with the proteome of the seedlings but also the seeds of arabidopsis and arabidopsis has very oily seeds so it's, it's an oil seed um mm -hmm. and yeah, they wanted it's to see what it family was or genus or whatever no i think family as rapeseed like yes canola canola so that's also like very oily so basically they found that the the tuba so this underground storage compartment of the the tiger nut the tasty one his proteome looks very much like the proteome of the arabidopsis oil seeds mm -hmm. so not really clear why but the tiger nuts the tubers have decided that they're going to basically be seeds from a proteomic point of view and <laughs> I would like to say that's why they're delicious. <laughs> Not sure if it's true, but that's... Yeah, but can we grow them? That's what it is. I mean, if it's an invasive weed, they must have some advantage in... No, 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 no. The it was the disgusting... Isn't? The purple one. I mean, I didn't actually look at the yellow one because I'm reading everything with confirmation bias of thinking it's beautiful and delicious, but... Okay. So I, I hope the yellow one is also invasive and we can easily grow it here. And then we can have tiger nuts here as well. I found uh, also a very cool plant um, that's the sister of all flowering plants. I don't know if you've heard about that. It's um, it's Amborella tricopoda. It's um, a plant that is the earliest known living plant um, branching off the phylogenetic tree of all flowering plants. So you have sort of the emergence of flowering plants and you have like Amborella branching off and everything else being in the other clade. It's like everything took a turn for the to the left and just Amborella took a turn to the right and continued to do it in its thing. And that makes it super wait, weird and interesting. Wait, sorry. No, no. No, I need to, I need to ask. Is is it still around now or is it's it It's still extinct? around. It's still around. Okay. That's why I say like the, the living one. I imagine that there must have must have been others as well. Um but so this just is still like living everything around it died like all of its relatives did they find are there ancient cousins of Amborella that have just not made it I, I couldn't find anything they said it's uh, it's sort of alone like the species is alone in its genus and it's alone in its family um, so it seems to be at least as, as far as we know just this one thing um, that sort of branched off and now is very interesting for people who study the evolutionary development of plants uh, as a sort of time like a, a time capsule of what plants looked like before they continue to differentiate each other like differentiate and evolve into the many different flowering plants that we know today and so it has like a, a couple of weird features that are lost by other flowering plants that continue to, to develop and is therefore a good sort of yes comparison point there and so they sequenced it already in 2013 um mm -hmm. 
And it, ha it does. It lacks features like certain conductive vessels in the stem that you find in most flowering plants, and it just doesn't have it because it branched off because before all the other flowering plants could um, could evolve them uh, or like evolve, uh, yeah, ev evolve these these conductive uh, vessels. Uh, and now it's mostly found in New Caledonia. And there it is un uh, under threat. So there is fires, mining, agriculture, invasion by other species, urbanization and global warming. Sort of this, the, the classic threats to endangered species. And mm. in this case, it's, 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 even, it's dramatic for it's because of its value for, for the scientific community or in, or in general as, as, as a plant that has this very special role on the phylogenetic tree. So they say that the, the disappearance of Amborella trachopoda would imply the disappearance of a genus, a family, and an entire order and is the only witness, witness to at least 140 million years of evolutionary history. And so now there is conservation strategies done targeting specifically that species, mm -hmm. trying to preserve it and save it. Um, yeah. Sorry, I think I feel like you said that too fast. Can you give that quote again? Because that was quite dramatic. Like, it's yeah. It said the disappearance of Amborella trichopoda would imply the disappearance of a genus, a family, and an entire order, as well as the only witness to at least 140 million years of evol evolutionary history. Uh, so wow. that's yeah, that's a very very important plant, and yeah, as I said, now they're preserving it or trying to preserve it, trying to pr preserve its habitats um, as as best as they can to keep that thing around. And I just didn't know that that, that you have this this weird branching off where you have a sister plant to all of the other flowering plants, just like the the weirdo of the family that sort of does its own thing on the side while the rest of the family which is huge, mm. is continuing to doing their, their own sort of standard flowering plant stuff. It's like it was a bit of an evolutionary dead end, but actually also kind of worked. Yeah, I mean, it's... Like pandas. <laughs> yeah, it, it stuck around, but it didn't, it didn't create lots of side branches for itself. So it just, just this one niche worked very well, but nothing else. I have something which similarly links back to the long, long times ago and the sort of origins of plants, or at least in this case, the colonization of land by plants. And this is my paper of the week. <gasps> it's the paper of the week. So this is a um, an article that's just been accepted. The early version is available online in JXB, Journal of Experimental Botany. And just a disclaimer, I know one of the authors. I read the title and then I was like, oh, that's an interesting topic. And then I realized that I've, I was previously at an institute with one of the co-authors. But that's one of the things. This is like this, this bias where you're like, oh, it's an interesting topic. And it's probably because I've heard about this before. <laughs> It's also like also one of those topics that it's interesting, but it's one of the three things I, when I was an active scientist, like in the lab, I was like, I will never work on three things. <laughs> and one of them is oxen yeah. hormones, because once you hit oxen, there's no going back. Like everything is oxen and it does everything. Very similar to that TOR, target of rapamycin. It's kind of the central hub controlling mm -hmm all elements of growth and development and metabolism and it's just a monster and I, I literally while I was looking for this I found like I was looking today for papers I found another paper saying oh by the way Tor also controls the development of trichomes <laughs> so I was like okay 
Sure, why why not? I mean, really, why not? <laughs> so, auxin, or basically any plant hormone, tor, and then the last one is retrograde signaling. Oh, yeah, I worked on that. Like, at the beginning <laughs> of my plant science career, I was involved in a small project on retrograde signaling. Yeah, so maybe, Yarm, you can explain what retrograde signaling is then. Yeah, so in general, we think that signaling in the cell happens from the nucleus, where the DNA sits, to the organelles, where stuff is done photosynthesis for example in the chloroplast so nucleus yep. sends a signal says more photosynthesis please and then that happens but and that's like we're talking about um signals on the genetic level here so transcription signals and stuff like that mm-hmm. um but there's evidence that there's also a signal going the way back so the chloroplast does something and that's signaled back to the nucleus and changes how the DNA is read and transcribed and translated in the nucleus. And this, or like translated outside of the nucleus, if you picky. But so this signal going back from the chloroplast, or in general from the organelles, like also from the mitochondria and so on, um, there's evidence that this exists. But how that works, uh, I don't know how it is nowadays, but when I was looking into this, I think by now 10 years ago, like we didn't have a mm. good idea. Like there were so many ideas what it could be, but um, nobody really knew for sure which proteins, if any, are involved. If there's like small signaling molecules, if there's ROS, this reactive oxygen species, if that is involved or not. All of these things were discussed, but nobody yeah. had a solid evidence back then. But I think stuff happened since then. Yeah, so there's there's now like some a lot of identified genes involved and other pathways, as you said, like other signaling pathways. But it's it's also quite chaotic. Like so, you can find out a gene is involved, but finding out that might be the first the first signal that goes. But then the downstream, you know, how mm-hmm. that messenger pathway works also becomes very difficult. And it's just something that's stressful to study. I would say yeah. it's really <laughs> um, really messy. Like. <laughs> So this is the paper that came out in JXP. It's called The Colonization of Land Was Likely a Driving Force for the Evolution of Mitochondrial Retrograde Signaling in Plants. So yeah, this is those signals being sent from the mito back to the nucleus to be like, oi, something's wrong. Let's fine tune you sending us some Mm -hmm. more of your genes. Um, And this is basically a phylogenetic study. So they were looking sort of at back in the history um, to see they have... Um, genes, proteins, signaling pathways involved in this mitograde retrograde, mitochondrial retrograde regulation. I just made up a new word. It's mitograde. You guys can use that for free. <laughs> mitochondrial retrograde regulation community. They're calling it MRR, mitochondrial retrograde regulation. So they were looking at um, the evolutionary origins of these plant MMR regulators and using phylogeny to sort of see how how long ago they've existed and when they arose. And basically, I like this because it's it's much cleaner than doing the lab work, honestly. <laughs> I'm getting to just sort of <laughs> look at the phylogenies. And they found that although there's the gene families which have these MRR regulators in them can go all the way back to green algae or even earlier than the green algae, so right back to sort of when plants became plants um, and was you know single cells and things like that, there's sort of subfamilies of the MRR regulators which are specifically involved in this MRR, and they seem to first arise in mosses, um, and even some more of them seem to only have come in seed plants. So based on that, the authors suggest that 
the transition to land was one of these major drivers which led to the development of plant MRR pathways and then there was some more fine tuning when things like seed plants sort of started coming about. And this is maybe not that surprising because this is always one of the things that we say that coming to land was insanely stressful for plants. When you're in the water, things are pretty balanced, like your temperature doesn't fluctuate too much. Your light fluctuates a little bit less than it does on land. Everything's a little bit easier. And coming to land was just like Mm -hmm. very, very stressful. And that's one of the things that gave rise to more complexity as a way to constantly be like fine tuning things. Mm -hmm. So like, oh, look, we've run out of water. We need to like shut things down. So there's all these signalings and and fine tunings happening. So that's that um, paper that came out. And then I was thinking about mitochondrial retrograde signaling. I was like, oh, I wonder what's happening in, in the chloroplast retrograde signaling field. Um, and there's actually kind of a similar paper that came out in June this year. And this is, again, by somebody I knew, actually somebody I used to work with. Uh, they, The paper is a new phytologist and it's called the Genomes Uncoupled 1. So this is GUN1 is the nickname of this protein. And Yoram's looking anxious already because he might have heard of this in, in also, relation. I, I was working on GUN4 in my first project. I was always yeah. uh, GUN4. I, I wrote that in my student thesis that I wrote back then so many times. GUN4, GUN4, GUN4. Yeah, so so they're called genomes uncoupled, I think, because this is like the the origin, right? Is mm-hmm. that they were discovered because when they got knocked out, suddenly the plastid stopped being able to talk back to the nucleus. Yeah. Right? The chloroplast couldn't give that retrograde signal. And they're like, oh no, the genomes have become uncoupled. The genome of the nucleus and the, the genome in the, the plastid chloroplast have become uncoupled. So this is why these proteins existed. And they were discovered based on that. But then 20 years later, <laughs> there was still a lot of like, yeah, lack of clarity. So this one, sorry, is the GUN1 protein has an ancient, highly conserved role, but not in retrograde signaling. <laughs> um, and it's sort of a similar idea looking back to ancient plant lineages to see what happened and when this plant arose. But in this case, it's it's more lab-based work. So here they took the the GUN1 from like Arabidopsis. They had a mutant which was lacking GUN1. And they put the GUN1 protein or the, the closest looking thing, both from a liverwort, Marcantia polymorpha. So liverwort's kind of this like flat kind of lower plant, sort mm-hmm. of historical, like, sorry, sorry to all the liverwort lovers <laughs> out there. But, you know, it, it derived uh, earlier in our sort of complexity of plants. So they, put, they used that one, but then they also used something from an algae um, in there. So this is like going back sort of even further in evolutionary time. And they were putting those ones into the Arabidopsis mutant to see if basically you could use those versions to fix mm-hmm. removing that Arabidopsis one. And then they were also looking at um, what happened when you just removed the Marcantia, the Liverwort's own gun one. And basically they they found that they could use these genes uh, sort of to, to complement Arabidopsis. But Nonetheless, they're still not doing that same thing in their original mm-hmm. plants, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so they could recover the, some some of the problems that they had from the knockout, but not the full signaling. 
yeah, so they're saying like this this protein it evolved a long time ago, even before plants did come to land. So the protein was around, but it's unlikely um, that its role was in this retrograde signaling. However, it probably did have some role in controlling the gene expression from the chloroplast nonetheless. So mm-hmm. there was like already this control of gene expression. It just wasn't this like backtalk kind of thing. And one thing they also mention in this is that um, Raphalesia plants. Do you know which ones Raphalesia is? It's these, like big, huge flowers. I think they're found in Malaysia. Um, big red flowers. They grow like a meter wide and they are parasites. So they don't have ah, leaves. Yeah, it's yeah. just a beautiful flower. And it like, smells like rotting flesh. And one of the, I think it's the largest known flower, right? I think so, yeah. It's super impressive, super stinky, but also super lazy because these these are parasites. So they are not they're making flowers and they're not putting effort into other things. And they lack chloroplast genomes. They've just basically given up on having chloroplast genes and they also yeah. um lack the gun. So that was the that was sort of the two papers which were um linked to retrograde signaling and then i have to say i was thinking okay i looked at mitochondrial organelles and uh, mitochondria which is an organelle and i looked at chloroplasts and then i was like hmm like i know i know peroxisomes don't have a genome or anything but i wonder what's going on in the peroxisome world these days because (laughs) peroxisomes are always the forgotten organelles and i started to look into papers on this and then i tried to read one and i realized i just had completely forgotten again what peroxisomes are even supposed to do and (laughs) why i should care about them so i'm gonna put a reminder here i had to go back and read an article rewrote a couple of years ago about the forgotten organelle which is the peroxisomes (laughs) to remind myself why i should care about peroxisomes <laughs> so anybody else who finds yourself like responding to what i'm saying and be like peroxis what now um i we're gonna put the link in the show notes go read that i'm not gonna talk about peroxisomes any more than that except to say they make really cool crystals inside them <laughs> uh, i i found a story that um also looks at like longer time scales actually surprisingly short time scales so this is a, a study where they looked at what happens when a plant that can self-pollinate and be pollinated by bumblebees what happens when the bumblebees disappear and uh, what they found was that very quickly the genetic diversity is lost in these populations so where before when the the pollinators come in and they exchange genes between plants, uh, they sort of mix up genetic material within the population. But when they can only self, so only self-pollinate and there's no more uh, external pollinators, very quickly the individual genetic diversity and the total genetic diversity within the population declines. And that happens within tens Mm -hmm. of generations and not hundreds or thousands of generations, but within tens of generations. So depending on the species, this can be a very short time scale where an entire population sort of degenerates on a gene diversity level which then makes the population more susceptible to damage by pathogens for example because they have less genetic resources to adapt to a new type of fungus or virus or another insect that attacks them uh, because they just have less building blocks sort of available to to evolve with them and that's very um, disconcerting uh, because pollinators are under threat they Mm -hmm. is a big danger of losing more and more pollinators in ecosystems and this has then 
much larger effects than just sort of the direct effect of some plants that have to evolve new ways of actually getting maybe they have to evolve self-pollination to just survive and that can still happen but even if that happens it very quickly degrades the quality of uh, or the diversity of genes within the population okay Yoram, i have something that i saw which i saw a thing and it made me want to ask a question because I read, I read an abstract and I was like, wow, that, that just makes perfect sense. That's, that's how you should do that if you're a plant. Um, and I wanted to, to, to think, like, it seems very logical once I knew the solution, but I wondered if you could come up with a solution yourself. So Yoram, if you want to define certain parts of yourself, like spatially, mm-hmm. where there's a certain amount of a thing, and in this case, the thing is hydrogen peroxide. How would you how would you make it that there's different concentrations of hydrogen peroxide? So spatial patterns of hydrogen peroxide. How I would like make my body have that like on a sort of primitive way like how can i yeah without like consciously just forcing the hydrogen peroxide in these areas just like how would i set up my molecule stuff just like yeah in 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 the context of this podcast you are a plant so Mm -hmm. you're a plant and you want to have spatially patterned hydrogen peroxide concentration bits I would I would probably the the first most straightforward thing is I would link that to sunlight exposure and then the stuff where I'm shading myself has a different hydrogen peroxide concentration than the stuff where it's direct exposed directly exposed to the sun and then so, I would so have Yarm is a referen- Yarm is referencing the fact that hydrogen peroxide is often a byproduct that comes about from photosynthesis right like you're saying yeah, I, I was just like thinking a- of i was just trying to find an external trigger that is not equal all around my my plant body and where then i can have these patterns without even caring if it's useful to have oxygen hydrogen peroxide at these places but just to have it in different so it amounts Sorry, just to establish the rules of the game, plant yarn. It is useful. <laughs> you do. You're gonna need like basically. You want to level up, and you need to develop a certain thing. And in this case, the thing is stomata. You want to develop stomata. Mm-hmm. And as it turns out, to develop stomata, you're gonna need to have a little bit more hydrogen peroxide in a certain places, and a little bit less in other places. And just as a reminder, yes, hydrogen peroxide can come by really exploding some things with sunlight. But by and by, we don't want to be exploding things. Yeah. We're not going to have. We're not going to have photosynthesis in the epidermal cells where we are making our stomata anyway just as mm-hmm. i mean it's god cells but like away from that um just as a clue and also just to read you one sentence of this this introduction hydrogen peroxide h2o2 an endogenous oxidant present in all aerobic cells yeah, the other thing I could do is just have like a catalase or some like detoxifying enzyme and then bing, 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 bing. specifically just degrading it. Uh, so catalases, they take hydrogen peroxide and break it down, I think, just into water and oxygen. Um, I think there's a very yeah. simple experiment that you can do in school where you get like uh, hydrogen peroxide bleach and you take a potato and you make like a little bit of mashed potato, uh, like raw potato, and put that into the hydrogen peroxide and then it starts to foam and bubble because it's breaking it down into oxygen and water. Mm-hmm. Um, so then express the catalase in certain areas and don't express it in others and then I can have this difference. 
Yeah, I mean, we've just, like, we need a new segment called Is Your Arm Smarter Than a Plant? Today, you are at least as smart as a plant. That's exactly what you do. So, the plants um, basically establish spatial expression patterns of the enzymes that scavenge the H2O2 so they can basically remove it from certain places. Um, And it's catalase, it's CAT2, and it's also something else called APX1, which is another scavenger. So, yes, brilliantly done. Also, I think we might be going back into peroxisome. Yay, peroxisomes. Is there something to do with hydrogen peroxide there? I don't know. Um, Read the blog. I didn't read the whole thing, as you can tell. Um, So this is basically a paper that has come out in NatComs a couple of weeks back, and it's spatially patterned hydrogen peroxide orchestrates stomatal development in Arabidopsis. And yeah, I just thought it was cool because... Of course, that makes sense. Like you want to get like have a gradient, you just can like either try to produce more of it in a certain place, but when it comes to something like hydrogen peroxide, which is a dangerous and b like quite a, a broadly used signaling molecule, that's maybe not the best thing to do to to make more. Or you can just like suck it up from certain areas. So I think that's mm-hmm. kind of cool and simple. And this paper goes into some other things to look at how this patterning then plays a role in the formation of the stomatal holes. And this is just a really good place to remind you all that the genes involved in making stomata have really, really cool names. So (laughs) this one is speechless. (laughs) Um, And that's because I think the original mutation of this gene, so the mutant which didn't have the gene in it, um, there wasn't stomata, so there was no mouths. so speechless is one of them. I think there are also genes called scream. I think there's one called too many mouths, maybe. So it's there's so a whole, weird to like, associate them with mouth because <laughs> really, like that's not what they are. Maybe then but their nose is at best because they do gas exchange. But a mouth I associate with speaking or feeding and neither are things that stomata do for plants. It's just because they look like two thick lips that can open they and close. They look exactly, yeah, I think they look exactly like mouths. I, yeah, I don't know why you would. So scream, speechless, too many mouths, and mute is the one where you don't have, I guess that's similar to, I think mute must interact with speechless. <laughs> it must, it must be, it's just from her names, yeah. I wrote previously, the chattier named mutants tend to have too many holes while the quiet ones don't make enough. So that's, I don't know, I like it also because the names are really cute, but they also, they tell you what's happening. You know, if you get rid of this, then no holes. Anyway, um, go check that out. <laughs> and also, Yaron, please make a new jingle, which is like, are you as smart as a plant? <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll do my best um, to come up with something. Um, a plant I, could do it, Yoram. <laughs> okay, I'll, I'll just ask a plant um, to, to make a jingle for us the next time. Um, speaking of jingles, I need to play this. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias. 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 I found um, a paper that was published in journalism and mass communication quarterly um just this august uh um and it's called trusting the facts the role of framing news media as a trusted source and opinion resonance for perceived truth and statistical statements and that that's was a too many words yeah um yeah. in the end what it comes down to is they looked at framing um do you know what framing is in the terms of in like communication science 
I don't know if it's like the the context you put the story in somehow. Yeah, exactly. Like you ha- you just have a number, for example, like uh, two thirds of British cheese is imported, and then mm-hmm. you can frame that in different directions. Uh, you can call yeah, that. Yeah, you can be like, up to one third is now from disgusting foreign cows, or like foreign cows benefiting from Britain's love of cheese. Yeah. Or um. Exactly. It's all you can say. Already one third is home produced, um, and so you have the same number, and you can frame it in a positive and in a negative light. And if I give you two headlines and say one third of British cheese is made in the UK, and that's great, or if I tell you two thirds of cheese consumed in Britain are not produced in Britain, and that's a disgrace, which ones of you of these facts would you believe more? See, the thing is, I've tried British cheese. So like, <laughs> <laughs> I actually really like British cheddar. Uh, yeah, um, I guess you tend to believe the the negative one more, actually. I think I believe the outrageous. Am I wrong? I think the one where it's like, oh, no, this is bad, actually is more convincing. Yeah. Yeah, that, and that's exactly it. That's what I found in this study is that given sort of the same circumstances, sort of the same source where you, you, you hear the news and everything, but one is framed positively and one is framed negatively, people tend to trust the negatively framed statistical statement more than their equivalent positive counterparts. And that's the negativity that, bias that we have. So to me, that's because I think if you're... If you're saying one third, already one third is British produced, I'm just like, okay, like that's, yeah, why? Why? I'm trying to think of the, the rationale behind this. It to just me, seems my- like somebody read this fact, whereas it seems like in order to be outraged, you have to research before you're outraged. And I know that's actually not what happens with the news, but it feels like you should put a little bit more research in if you're going to then like start screaming. Yeah. Yeah, I think to me it is um, we're so surrounded by by marketing and advertisement and constantly tries to sell you the benefits of something so that when oh, somebody tells me beneficial information or something, how, how great it's going, like some cautiously I'm thinking there's like some lobbying firm, some agency behind yeah. it that, that wants to tell me like Brit- big British Somebody's cheese company ag- agenda. is yeah. pushing that. While when there's something negative, nobody wants to say something negative about their brand. So this must come then from an objective source, from somebody outside I mean, of the thing with no personal interest. And I know this is except- completely wrong. Like I know that it's wrong, but this is like, I think what's subconsciously yeah. happening in some parts of it. That's uh, that's interesting. I wonder, yeah, I wonder if they can compare it, if there have been those comparisons looking at, you know, things that you might have seen an ad for recently and seeing if you're more like, you know, if you've already seen something promoting this product as a positive, we've seen lots of positive advertising, if you're even more likely to believe the negative, I wonder if there's these sorts of studies that have been done. Yeah, I mean, what they, they've, they've looked at two more things in this study. First off, uh, like the next thing that they looked at is um, sort of tying into what, what I thought about this um, is that if you're told then this information comes from a news outlet, um, if that alleviates the negativity bias. So if I tell you, no, this is not actually big cheese that's giving you the information, that's BBC One or somebody. Um, and in their study, they found that... You say that as if like BBC One isn't under the hands of Big Cheese, which I think we all know is not true. <laughs> like, not since the 90s has BBC One I mean, been free of Big, big Cheese big marketing. Cheese. <laughs> 
<laughs> bloody big cheese. <laughs> um, so, but yeah, in this study, they found that this hasn't doesn't have an uh, effect on the negativity bias. You're just as biased to build tr for, uh, trust more the negative statement, even if I tell you this comes from a objective news outlet. Um, and the other thing that they looked at is um, if personal opinion, like prior opinion about the matter has an effect on a negativity state, uh, negativity bias. And that is true. So if you have already um, a prior opinion about a statistical fact, like uh, the cheese, and you already resonate with the positive framing, so you are already... In f like you already know something about like the the cheese production in Britain and you're positive about this and then you hear the positive framing then you are more likely to accept that also as true and are less likely to trust more the negative framing of the imported cheeses that are disgusting and so prior knowledge helps with the negativity bias but um, the source of the information doesn't help with it so you can't just frame positive things and and just by saying this comes from journalists now people are more likely to believe it or tr to trust it they still sort of trust more the negative framing um mm. so yeah that's the negativity I bias as in, in this recent study I like the fact that a lot of countries, as they say, export their best produce, right? Like they have really good produce and they, they send it outwards and then people at home never realize that their country has such good wine. But Britain seems to have managed to do the exact opposite. Like if you go to Germany and eat British cheddar, it's basically, it, it's it's plastic that's been colored orange. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't know how we've managed that. Like, I mean, we, as I come, my adopted country, like the cheddar here is very good. Please come to the island and try the cheddar. Yes. How have we managed to tell you guys that this is cheddar? I don't know. I'm not sure what happened there. I, I also have no idea. I think that's that's why the British have a reputation of having bad food because sort of the exported foods that make their way to the continent. No, it's also because they have bad food. I mean, they also have, to be fair, like I've I've eaten so well in Britain. Whenever I was there, I was I was <laughs> excited at the, at the food. And but did you but eat when British I buy, like, food or did you eat immigrants' food? I also like British like, food, I mean, like classic like British Sunday roast dinners, for example, that are not immigrant food, like a, a British lamb with a mint sauce and stuff like that. That was delicious. And Yorkshire puddings, I I love those. Yorkshire puddings are unholy. We've had no. our discussions about this before. They're only made to like absorb oil. And it's just it's just not okay no like this is anyway. i i really enjoy these types of food and but then when you look at what i can buy here that has a british label on it it's really it's it's plastic cheese and very dry crackers and stuff like that it's, okay yeah so maybe they don't know how to cook over there um but that's also maybe my negativity bias i make it bad <laughs> have a bad impression here um and i think therefore um oh yeah it's negative so it must be true Whereas, like the people that gave me good food, they tr they were bought by big cheese and tried to convince me. Big British cheese. <laughs> cat fact. Um, today I have a cat fact about hawk moths and especially the deaths had hawk moth which is a beautiful thing to pronounce for a german speaking person um with all of the weird sounds and the th's and everything um so the death's head hawk moth is a moth that has a skull shaped um oh yeah i know it i know it's sorry it's the one on the cover of silence of the lambs right like it's this oh i don't know I that think, but it must be yeah. i think the si silence of the lambs film 
has this. It's it's very possible. Yeah. It's one of the largest moths you find here in um, continental uh, Europe. Or the study that I'm talking about today was done in Germany, um, and this this moth, like many, not many, but like some insects, they are actually migratory. They move uh, large distances, especially butterflies, but also moths, and mm. I imagine others as well. I'm no expert there, but they can actually <laughs> migrate larger distances. And many of these migratory insects, they they go anywhere the wind blows. They're just blown away. They are very passive in the way they pick the destination that they go to. They try to go um, north or south depending on the season, but overall they're not really picky in the in the exact direction that they go to and they're sort of blown away. But not so the death's head hawk moth that uh, flies precisely in very straight lines uh, towards its destination and now researchers have plugged like glued tiny little uh, radio transmitters onto these moths and then they followed them and they followed them by plane because they <laughs> they fly around and I, I just find that insane that they can fly behind a moth somewhere um, because they had to pick up these radio signals like, it's not something with a GPS coordinate because it has to be tiny so it just sends a little ping and you have to go with a trend, like uh, with a responder and follow that ping to actually draw the tracking line onto a map and they did that with a plane and they followed once particular moth like they, they did that to a couple of them and one of them they followed for 90 kilometers just like one single moth and this is one of the longest distances that researchers have ever tracked in a single insect sorry sorry i'm gonna say what we're all thinking that moth knew he was being followed and was just, <laughs> just like, like just keep going <laughs> just keep going barry like just a few more kilometers will get away from them now like don't look back barry just keep on going like yeah <laughs> somebody glued something onto him and then followed with him in it with a plane and they're like this is naturally how the moth behaves it's, 90 kilometers is a normal amount of i've never moved 90 kilometers in my life like it's certainly it's, they, they, they're bullying the moths really they even <laughs> say that in the article that um they <laughs> the researchers say the the moths talk to you they shout at you a little bit when you put a little transmitter on them so they don't like that the moths are irritated by it and annoyed but then they release and then they try to get away and maybe because they're annoyed by the research they try just in a straight line as far away as they can <laughs> and the so poor mo- i mean these poor moths like they got all that shit from the silence of the lambs film like people were collecting them and full and now they're like what 30 years later they're still being followed <laughs> Yeah. Uh, so what they learned there by f- bullying and following these moths is that they have uh, um, sensory things in their body. They can sense the the earth mag- uh, magnetism and uh, follow the magnetic field and use oh that gosh. for navigation, like so many other animals were shown before to do that. So now we also know that these moths can do that, so- and then they can really like they have a picture of the sort of the line that they do, and they they go into the Alps, um, and I think they cross them even, and so they just go like in a straight line um, towards the mountains, which is. So, so now all of you weirdos listening who are really into that biohacking, you know, people who are like into putting magnets into their fingertips to see if they themselves could feel the... Just tie moths to your fingers, isn't it? Like, just like... <laughs> Fly in a certain direction, yes. I think that's a very good idea to, um, to do that. Yeah, so that's the death Amazing. head hawk moth uh, that's been bullied <laughs> And, and I was hunted. angry about how far away we've gone from cats, but this fact was absolutely worth it. So well done. 
Um, I think that is it. That is all of our show for today. So if you want to get in contact with us, you can sometimes find me on Facebook and Instagram. It's at Plants and Pipettes. And you can talk to me on Twitter. That's at Plants Pipettes. And we also have a website that's plantsandpipettes.com and there we have the example. Brilliant thing about peroxisomes. Um, <laughs> somebody go and read that before next week as well as a lot of other articles we've written about various topics in plant science over the last few years. And I want to ask everyone to rate us on the iTunes and wherever you can rate podcasts these days. It constantly keeps changing, but I'm always happy to uh, get to hear back from you, the listeners, and maybe give us as many stars as you think we deserve for these amazing facts about Hawkmoth. So yeah, thank you I for mean, listening. Yoram is a professional science communicator now, so like the ratings, you know, that goes on his CV, you guys. <laughs> yes. Um, Every single um, one of you is on my CV mentioned by name. It's just like, this person likes me, so you can call them and ask them about me before you hire me. <laughs> As always, our opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Gross. Thank you and... Goodbye. Goodbye.